Well, good evening. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. You can turn with me in your Bibles to a new book this evening. We just finished Second Peter, the epistle, that, Peter's second epistle, uh, that he wrote to the churches of Asia Minor. And now we find ourselves in First John. So you can turn with me to First John, John's first epistle. This evening is our introduction, and you probably know this already if you've been here any, any amount of time, that I, I take the time to give us a good background. So as we get into the book over the next few weeks, you'll have the information that you need to better understand God's Word. So we're only going to go through this, the introduction of this book. But before we do that, there's some things I want to share with you about John, the author, so you can know the person a little bit better. Also, the date, style, and subject of the letter before we get to just the first few verses in the introduction. But before we do that, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are a good and gracious God, and we love you. And we're so grateful that you never leave us nor forsake us, that you walk with us through the darkest of times. Lord, that we never need feel alone or without you by our side. As we walk before you, that is following your ways. As we walk after you, that is following your leading. As we walk with you, that is in relationship. And as we walk in you, as in our being filled with the Spirit, to be able to do the work that you desire to do in us and through us. Oh, Lord God, as we walk with you, we desire to walk ever closer with you as the days grow darker. Your word is a light, Lord, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We desire to be increased in our faith for hearing your word this evening. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm excited to start a new book, a new letter this evening. And as we get into 1 John, uh, the first thing I want to mention, and I think this is an important topic, is that the theme of 1 John is fellowship in Christ. Fellowship in Christ. We've all seen over this last year, year and a half now, we've all seen just how important fellowship in Christ is. For a while there, some of us, not all of us, but some of us were deprived of fellowship uh, by the fear and the media and other mandates and legal restrictions. We were actually deprived in many ways of the level, at least the level of fellowship that we had become accustomed to. But now we're not. Here we are on a Wednesday evening and and enjoying each other's company. And and then we we have our Sunday morning services and women's Bible studies, men's studies, children's events. All of these things are happening again. Sunday school. We're not restricted in any way. And then you start to hear things like, oh, the CDC has decided that maybe we'll go back to separating people again. I already shared with you my heart's desire to push back against that to not a reckless degree, but to a reasonable degree, I do not intend to give up any of the fellowship or Bible study time that we've enjoyed uh, going back now the, the last few months without the restrictions. Now, what I am looking forward to in studying this book is learning about fellowship in Christ, but what I'm looking forward to even more is experiencing fellowship in Christ. And so the writer, the writer of this epistle, this general epistle, that is, it was written to uh, anyone who wanted to read it, as opposed to a letter like Paul's epistle to the Romans or Galatians, written to a specific group of people. It's a general epistle uh, written by John, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. You're probably familiar with the person named John. His name actually means, in Greek, it means Jehovah is a gracious giver. 
Jehovah is a gracious giver, and he gives us so much. And John was well-named because the Lord used him in a wonderful way to give us so much of the New Testament as well, the Gospel of John, uh, the, the book of Revelation, these three epistles. Uh, he was one of the sons of Zebedee and Salome. His father was a fisherman and apparently a man of some wealth. His mother left her home to follow Jesus. Think about that, to follow Jesus. She was one of the women that were caring for his needs and the needs of his disciples. There were several women that, that did this, and she was one of them. He was probably the younger brother of James, seems to be the case. And it's entirely possible that Jesus' mother, Mary, and John's mother, Salome, were sisters. There seems to be some indication to that in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 25. And this, if true, would mean that James and John were actually Jesus' cousins. So they were more than likely closely related. This would also mean that they were related to the family of John the Baptist, which makes sense when you think about the fact that John was one of the followers of John the Baptist, along with Andrew and others, uh, before they started to follow the Messiah, Jesus. So John grew up in Bethsaida, on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee, and like his father, he also became a fisherman. He worked with James, his brother, and Peter and Andrew, who were also brothers, so two sets of brothers. John, his brother James, Simon and Andrew, or Simon Peter and Andrew, were inseparable. We see this even in the Gospels. They probably spent their boyhood and their early adulthood in constant fellowship. These people knew each other. And it comes out loud and clear in the way they communicated with and to each other. These brothers all enjoyed the advantages of a religious training and instruction in the scriptures. They weren't poor. They were working class people, and yet they were successful enough to enjoy religious training and instruction in the scriptures. And this explains their familiarity with the great prophecies regarding the coming Messiah and why they were ready and prepared to follow Jesus when he appeared and when he called them. Now, they didn't enjoy any special training, like Paul the Apostle, you know, special training in the study of the law under any of the rabbis. They, they weren't given that ability or advantage. But John was also acquainted with Caiaphas, the high priest, one of the bad guys of the New Testament. Uh, his family must have known the family of Caiaphas, which kind of indicates that more than likely they were pretty wealthy or at least somewhat successful and a respected family. John is mentioned and referred to frequently within the Gospels, many, many times. He was deeply influenced by the teachings of John the Baptist, and uh, John ministered in the wilderness of Judea. And so when he heard John say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he became a disciple of Jesus. He was one of the first six disciples called by Jesus very early in his ministry in Judea. So this is giving us an indication that all 12 disciples or apostles were not called at the same time. In fact, there was a time where Jesus only had a few followers that were following him this close, and there were others that followed as well before he chose the 12 apostles, which means the 12 that he would send, the 12 that he would send. He later sent 70. So, I mean, it's not as if he didn't send others as well. But they were with Jesus at the marriage feast of Cana. They journeyed with him to Capernaum, then to Jerusalem. But then they returned to Galilee through Samaria, where John returned to fishing. 
So they sort of went on a short-term missions trip with Jesus. They came back, they got back in their lives a little bit, and then Jesus called them to leave. To leave fishing and to follow him, to become fishers of men. So he, James and Peter, became Jesus' apostles. They were, again, more than likely his cousins. But more importantly, I think they became his friends. You see a lot of them, that is James, John, Peter, and Andrew, you see a lot of them uh, around Jesus, you know, most of the time when things are taking place. In fact, Jesus referred to them, and I think he referred to him and his brother in this way, in a more loving way. I don't think it was extremely critical, but he did call them the sons of thunder. They were very zealous and intense men. And uh, because of that, they were nicknamed this by, by Jesus, but they were very conscious of their position. And we see them ambitiously desiring rank and position. That's something that they had to grow in, and it's something that the Lord worked into their hearts, or actually worked out of their hearts, I should say. They were exclusive. They were insisting that others submit to their authority many times. They were intolerant of others. They desired to punish those that rejected them, like wanting to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. But John was frequently with Jesus when the majority of others were not present. It seems that John kept very close to Jesus, more so than some of the apostles, Some of the apostles were more independent, and that's fine. But John, James, especially Peter, they stayed very close to Jesus. Again, they were probably close relationally and had known each other their whole lives. In fact, John was present at the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. He was there with Peter and James when they saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. I... These three, with Andrew, were there when they privately questioned Jesus about the last days. They were uh, there alone with Jesus during the Mount of Transfiguration. John and Peter were sent to prepare the upper room for the Passover. Uh, John privately asked Jesus which of them would betray him because he was sitting right next to Jesus. It says he was leaning on his breast. Basically means he was sitting sort of in front of him. They would recline at the table so he could lean back and talk to Jesus. It's really just sort of describing that he was sitting next to him or or reclined next to him. Uh, John, Peter, and James were alone with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus' arrest. And John and Peter followed Jesus after he was arrested, and they witnessed his trial. But of all the apostles, John alone witnessed his trial before Pilate and his crucifixion. Only John. He was the only one asked by Jesus to be a son to his suffering mother Mary at the foot of the cross. He was also, of course, an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. He and Peter were the first ones to receive news of the resurrection from Mary Magdalene. They also went to investigate. And he saw Jesus shortly after he had risen from the dead. He stayed in Jerusalem for about eight days and then saw him again, and then he returned home. They went back to Galilee. And he and Peter, you'll remember, in John's Gospel, were fishing out on the Sea of Galilee with a couple of other apostles, and Jesus appeared to them again on the shore. And so there you see a lot of interaction recorded for us between Jesus and John. I think it's because John was just around Jesus a lot. If you want to be in the place where Jesus works, stay close to Jesus. 
And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the other apostles. It's just that one thing we see, the testimony of John, is that he stayed very, very close to Jesus. And so most of the really amazing things that are recorded for us were recorded by John and others who were very close with him. Now, as we get into the book of Acts and the epistles of Paul, we see that John's mentioned and referred to several times within the Acts and within Paul's epistle to the Galatians. He was there with the other apostles at Jesus' ascension and on the day of Pentecost. Remember, he and Peter were used by God to heal the crippled beggar at the temple gate called Beautiful in Acts chapter 3. And by the way, after that, they were seized and imprisoned by the Sadducees. Then they boldly defended themselves before the Sanhedrin. So you see John a little bit more at the front end of the book of Acts. uh, But he and the apostles uh, were used by God to perform many miraculous signs and wonders throughout the book of Acts. And that's talked about in Acts chapter 5. And because God used them in that way, we've seen this in our studies on Sunday mornings, they were seized and imprisoned by the Sadducees. They were released by an angel during the night and began to preach the gospel again. They were brought before the Sanhedrin where they boldly defended themselves once again. And so John really became a very strong and bold evangelist and apostle. They wanted to put them to death. The Sanhedrin wanted to kill them. But I think by God's providence, they just decided to beat them up and let them go. And what's amazing is the apostles considered themselves blessed, really. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And we talked about that. And we've talked about that over the last few weeks on Sunday mornings. Well, this did not stop them from continuing to preach the gospel throughout Jerusalem. And John did. In fact, John spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. He remained there as one of the leaders of the early church. He did not flee during the persecution of Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 8. He and Peter, though, went to minister in, of all places, Samaria. Remember? John and James didn't like the Samaritans very much. They made that perfectly clear. Wanting to call down fire from heaven on a group of people might qualify you as a racist. What do you think? (laughs) I think that John and James had to learn to love a group of people that they hated. They did. Because then Peter and John went to minister in Samaria. And you'll remember we studied this in Acts chapter 8. They confronted Simon the sorcerer together. Sadly, John lost his brother James. And we'll get to this when we get to Acts chapter 12 on Sunday mornings. He lost his brother James to martyrdom during the persecution of Herod. James was put to death with the sword. But he was still in Jerusalem 15 years after Paul's first visit serving as one of the pillars of the church. Peter, James, uh, the uh, uh, not the uh, Apostle James, James, the brother of our Lord, who wrote the book of James, and John, the Apostle, who wrote this book. He participated in the Jerusalem Council, recorded in Acts chapter 15, which had gotten together to talk about the Gentile converts in the church, you know, whether or not Gentiles had to become Jews in order to become Christians. Apparently, though, he was not in Jerusalem by the time of Paul's last visit, recorded in Acts chapter 21. What appears to have happened is at a certain point, and we believe it was probably after the passing of Mary, the mother of Jesus, for he was charged with taking care of her uh, as Jesus 
uh, was put to death and rose again and then ascended into heaven. He did ask John to take care of his mom, and we believe that after her passing, more than likely, he retired to Ephesus where he cared for the seven churches of Asia. Have you ever thought about why Jesus asked John to care for his mom? It seems pretty obvious that Joseph had since passed, and Jesus had brothers. So why was it that he asked John? See, I think you'll see in John's writing that John was of a particular personality that he felt would be a good person to care for his, his mom. And, let's be honest, if Jesus was the cousin of John, it made perfect sense. He's a little bit older than his brothers, more than likely, and he felt he was the right person for probably one of the most important jobs he could give him. Those of you who are parents, think about when you hire a babysitter or someone to provide daycare. It's a very important job. That's a very important position for your kids or your grandkids. It really is. So imagine also your parents, right? So you can get an understanding of just who John must have been. Now he's caring for seven churches. He's caring for the churches of Ephesus, uh, around Ephesus, and the churches of Asia. And when we say Asia, that's proconsular Asia. It's western Turkey. Uh, But during this time, he wrote his gospel, which we studied about a year ago or so now. And his three brief epistles, which we're studying now. He was later persecuted by Rome and banished to the Isle of Patmos, which he tells us in recording the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it was on Patmos that he received this revelation. He returned to Ephesus later on. And he died there, from all indications, probably about A.D. 98. Okay, so 98 A.D. That's, that's a long life. He outlived all of the other apostles, according to history and tradition. And there are many interesting traditions regarding John during this time, but they're just unfounded stories, so take them or leave them. The important thing is this man lived a very, very long time. What's interesting about that is during uh, that time in in John's Gospel, which John records, where Peter and Jesus were having a conversation, he just... You know, Peter wanted to know what was going to happen to John because he had already kind of heard that he would be martyred for his faith through crucifixion. That is, Peter heard this from Jesus. And he asked, well, what about John? And, and Jesus sort of corrected him and said, look, if I want him to stay here and remain until I come again, what's that to you? You know, why are you worried about what John is doing? I, it's interesting, though. I think it was because they were close and he was like, well, what about John, you know? And Jesus is saying, you know, stay focused on your own things, you know? But isn't it interesting, can you imagine why the rumor got started? Here's John living to a ripe old age, probably close to 100 at this point. And and my goodness, people must have started to think, well, maybe that's what Jesus meant, you know? He was going to be alive until Jesus came again. We we, we, We know that he hasn't come yet, so obviously that wasn't true. But just the same, he outlived all the other apostles. But the letter, let's talk a little bit about the letter before we get into the introduction. You know, the letter was probably written from Ephesus, where John was doing much of his writing, presumably toward the end of the first century, probably about 95 AD, and therefore toward the end of his life. It's written anonymously, though it's pretty obvious it's John, an eyewitness of Christ. And though he didn't sign the letter, it's generally accepted to be written by John the Apostle. It is unique among the books of the New Testament in that it does not contain a single proper name except the name of Jesus. Interesting. It's absent of any personal, historical, or even geographical references. 
He gets right to the point. It's about Jesus and having fellowship in Christ. It's a true letter from a person calling himself I to certain other persons he calls you. So it is a true letter, and it is very much a family letter from the heavenly father to his little children who are in the world. He addresses them as little children, as beloved. And it's interesting because his tone changes distinctly when he addresses his opponents. So when he's talking about God's children, he speaks in a very wonderful way. But then when he talks about the opponents, he gets, you know, you can tell his tone changes. Although the format is impersonal like a sermon, its tone is warm and personal. So I think we're going to enjoy studying this book. It suggested it was written to a broad audience, broad audience that was very dear to the author. And so these are people he cares a great deal about. Now, the great theme of the epistle is, as I've said, fellowship. Fellowship in the family of the Father through Jesus Christ. So it's fellowship with God, but it's also fellowship with one another. As we've said already, the theme is fellowship in Christ. So we have fellowship with Christ and with one another because of Christ. And we'll see that very clearly. John tells us plainly as we read this letter why he wrote this epistle. In fact, in three places in this epistle, and maybe you want to take the time to look at this during the week, he says he wrote the letter to make their joy complete. We'll see that today in verse 4. Why did he write it? To make their joy complete. He also wrote this in chapter 2, verse 1, he tells us, so that anyone reading this letter would not sin. Would not sin. That your joy might be complete, but that you would also not sin. Now, we could use a letter like this, right? We can use a little bit more joy and a little bit more strength in not sinning. And finally, he tells us at the end of the book, in chapter 5, verse 13, that he wrote this letter specifically so that they who read it may know that they have eternal life. See, as you know you have eternal life, you're filled with joy, and, and you're not going to give yourself over to sin. So all three of these themes do sort of come together to encourage us to have fellowship with Christ and in Christ with others. Now, John has been called the apostle of love, as he mentions God's love so frequently within this epistle. But believe me, brothers and sisters, he's equally dedicated to the truth. You see, today I think we see a lot of people talking about the love of God, not always the truth of God. Or you hear people talking about the truth of God, and they're not very loving in the way they present it. No, John was equally dedicated to the truth, and he frequently mentions the truth as well. While this epistle is in some ways impersonal, it's also one of the most passionate books of the New Testament. Now, conditions in the early church had changed uh, over, over the 70 years or so uh, that the church had been uh, meeting. Conditions had changed since the day of Pentecost and the first few years following. Many within the church were now second or third generation Christians. Uh, We see this happen all the time. When there's a move of the Spirit, the first generation is on fire. Then they have a bunch of kids, and those kids are, you know, maybe not on fire, but, you know, they're saved. Then you get to the third generation, and unfortunately, uh, it just seems to be the case, a move of God's Spirit doesn't seem to generally last but a few generations, three, four at the most. Why is that Because the heart of men and women, well, it's just the way we are. We have to have that experience of God's Holy Spirit ourselves. We can't rely on our parents' and our grandparents' faith 
in order to have faith and a relationship with God in fellowship with Christ. It has to be your own faith. And that's why many times things change in a church or a move of God's Spirit once you get to the second or third generation. Christianity had started to become traditional, half-hearted, and nominal. And we've seen that in our own culture. John doesn't identify any violent persecution against the church at this time. You see, the problem wasn't violent persecution. The peril was actually seduction. It was the seduction of the world. The peril came from within. And that's what John warns them about. See, men were trying to improve the Christian faith, trying to make it better. We've seen this in the emergent movement over the last decade or two, where people have come into uh, the church and they've decided, you know, the way we've been doing this, it stinks. We need to do a better job. The reason the gospel's not reaching the hearts of this culture, it's because the gospel presentation needs to change. We need to change what we've been doing in order to reach the culture. That's the mindset. Now, to a degree, there's some truth there. You may need to change the approach. You may need to change some things in order to reach the culture. I'll give you that. But you don't need to change the gospel. You don't need to change the word of God. In fact, you don't need to change the preaching or the teaching of the word of God. You don't. You don't need to water it down. You don't need to take out sin or judgment. You you don't need to do those things. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. I'm not a big fan of multi-location ministry. I'm not saying it can't work. I believe maybe it does. But for me, I'm just not a fan of a church becoming so bloated and so big that you're kind of impersonally involved with other people in the fellowship, including the pastor. Like, I just don't think that that's a good thing. When that happens, things seem to fall through the cracks. And before you know it, there's no accountability. And I find that what, what oftentimes happens when we try to improve the way we've been doing things, we get off track. We get off base. When we get away from the fundamentals of anything, we fail. If you step away from the fundamentals in an athletic discipline, like baseball or football, or wrestling, or boxing, or martial arts. You get away from the basic fundamentals, you fail. Anybody that's good at anything knows you can't step away from them. So in ministry, it's likewise true, because as we get away from the fundamentals of the teaching of God's Word, our fellowship, our worship, our service, our prayer life, these are the basics. Christianity is not complicated. Christianity is very simple, actually. As we get away from those basic fundamentals, we fail to reach the culture. And trying to make the gospel more seeker-friendly only succeeds in making it very diluted and doesn't have any effect on anyone who hears it. So I really think it's important to know that John was dealing with men who were trying to improve the Christian faith by making it different. In their case, they were trying to make it intellectually respectable. See, they were competing with the intellect of their day. And they're saying the faith is too simple. We need to dress it up and make it on par with more intellectualism. We've seen this in our culture. We've seen this in the church. We're in a place now where it's going the other way. Uh, They want to make the the gospel, you know, less intellectually respectable. But regardless of what you're doing, there's never a place for changing the gospel. 
maybe some of the approach to reach people's hearts, but never the actual message. Here's what John was dealing with. They were actually tweaking the message. They were actually changing it to be more attractive to the intellect. And that's where John really has some harsh words to share. In fact, he wrote this epistle to address various false teachings and specifically Corinthian Gnosticism, which was this sort of intellectual way of thinking about the gospel. This is important because it comes up a lot in this letter. This was a Gnostic cult. Now, the word gnosis in Greek, it means knowledge. So the Gnostics were people that walked around and said, I know. I know. Not humble, but sort of proud. I know. I'm a Gnostic. I'm in the know. I know stuff you don't know. That was their heart. That was their mind. So this Gnostic cult was teaching a number of false doctrines toward the end of the first century. First of all, they denied Christ's incarnation. See, they got so smart, they figured out how to explain away things and make up new truths that weren't truths. They were actually lies. They denied Christ's incarnation. They believed that all matter, including the body, was evil. Therefore, Christ couldn't have had a body. They also denied a Christian's sin nature. They believed that the flesh and the spirit were essentially separate. So if you sinned, that wasn't me. That was just my sin nature that sinned. I punched you in the face, but that wasn't really me. That was my sin nature that did that. I'm not, I'm not sinning. It was my body that sinned. You, you with me? You see where this is going? And finally, the other thing that was really important, uh, they rejected love, the love and responsibility of Christian fellowship in favor of a lofty spiritualism. So the theme of this book, Fellowship in Christ, they didn't value getting together. If they had had Zoom, they would have done everything on Zoom. You know what I'm saying? They weren't interested in being face-to-face. They weren't interested in being together. They, they were more interested in just being in the know and learning stuff and being really smart and making stuff up. That's what happens to you when you step outside the fundamentals. That or something even worse. So he identifies this danger that threatened the church as from uh, without, not from within. This was trying to, to get into the church. And it seems that many times in this letter, John is quoting many of their false claims within the epistle. So he brings these things up, and I'll point them out as we go through them. What he does instead is teach, teaches the true gnosis or knowledge, which these heretics aspired to know. They were trying to find out the truth. John gives us the truth, the real truth. Now, in the style of John, he writes very similar to that of Hebrew wisdom literature. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with that, that would be like Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, wisdom literature, uh, Proverbs. So he writes in, in, in that way. These heretics, they were trying to impress people with their ideas. John wasn't trying to impress anyone. He was trying to reach the heart with the truth. But he did write in a way that was appealing. The Hebrew wisdom literature uh, that he read and no doubt knew very well seeps through his writing, and we'll see that as we study. In fact, he teaches by antithesis. You guys know what antithesis is? He teaches by antithesis. An example, uh, these are fundamental opposites. For example, light and darkness, life and death, love, hate, truth, falsehood, the father, the world, God, the devil, antithesis. So you'll hear him many times speak in that way. And with that as the introduction, it gives us a really great jumping off point because 
knowing John, knowing the letter, knowing why it was written, knowing what some of the things that he's dealing with uh, are and, and why he dealt with them will help you to understand where he's going. Now, it's a brief letter, but there's, there's a lot in it. So let's start by just looking at the first four verses. And this is all we're going to get through tonight because it's a lot. You could meditate on these four verses for the rest of your life. And first of all, you'd know everything you need to know about who Jesus is. And you'd also probably just scratch the surface. Okay? Here's what we read. I'm going to read the whole section, then we'll go back over it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our or your joy, that is our collective joy, complete. That is just so much to think about. And as we were reading that, you see it read sort of like almost in a poetic way, like the wisdom literature of the, of the Hebrew writers. John isn't being vague, and he's not trying to be fancy in his writing. He's speaking in order to reach our hearts, not our heads. See, the problem is if if you read John the way the Gnostics wrote, trying to intellectualize these things, you're going to miss the point. Remember the theme is fellowship in Christ. And this is less about knowledge and more like knowledge information and more about knowledge experience. Because you can have knowledge that you get from a book. You can go to school and get a whole lot of knowledge. You you can spend four years and spend a lot of money and get a whole lot of information. But you know on your first day of your job, you have no experience. So what we need to know is that, you know, I mean, in Spanish, they have different words for know, right? Conocer y saber, you've got two different words. You got more words than that. But in English, we say no, and it can kind of mean know by experience, or it can mean no information. Now, you need to stop right now and make a decision for the rest of your life. Do you want more knowledge about Jesus? Or do you want more knowledge of experience with Jesus? Because that's what this book is all about. And so as we read these words, it's not designed to impress. It's not designed to be poetic. It's designed to reach your heart that you might want to grow closer to him. Let's break it down. There's only four little things I want to mention, and then we'll close. Jesus is the word of life. As we're reading this and we're talking about the word of life, the eternal life, you know who he's talking about, right? I mean, it may not be clear at first. He says that which. He doesn't say he who. He says that which was from the beginning. Right there you know who we're talking about, right? But if you didn't, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes and which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's speaking about Jesus. It's clear because when he gets to the end of the section, he says our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he actually kind of reels you in. Who's he talking about? What's he talking about? 
But when he gets to the end of the section, he tells you who he's talking about. All right? So that's what I mean when I say you have to read this in a certain way and understand why it's written the way it's written. It builds a little suspense in the writing, but it also answers all of your questions, including why he wrote the book or wrote wrote the the letter. Now let's talk about this first part of the first verse. (laughs) That which was from the beginning. There's an eternity of Bible studies wrapped up in just that opening. It tells us that Jesus, the word of life, has an eternal nature as the Son of God. That concept comes up 21 times in this epistle. His eternal nature as the Son of God. What that means is he's God Almighty, amen? He's one with the Father. He's without a beginning. He's without a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we read here, that which was from the beginning, it's not as if there was a beginning to God, it's just that when all of this began, God was there. And we know that from John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we read on, it's funny, he says that, and it's kind of like, what is he talking about? Then you get to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You're back to that sort of Hebrew poetry, wisdom style literature, because he doesn't just say it all up front. He lets you think about it, lets you marinate, lets you digest. What is he talking about? The Word was with God. In the beginning, the Word was with God. The Word was God. And you start to think about it, and then you get to verse 14, and it basically says, oh, by the way, the Word is Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. Get prepared to see a lot of that style. So you have to read enough of it to to let him answer the question. If you break the the study in the middle, you kind of leave it up in the air. It's a a cliffhanger, if you will. And this is a nice little compact section here. But he's God Almighty. He's without a beginning. He's always been God. Amen? He is the one and only Son of God, ruling over creation as the heir of all things, according to the Scriptures. So he's God. But... Not just God, God, creator God. Some people say, well, God created all things and then he handed it over to Jesus. No. By him, all things were created. There's nothing created that was, that that exists, nothing that exists that wasn't created by him. And he's speaking of Jesus. And of course, you'll read that in Colossians chapter one, but all of this comes out loud and clear from Genesis to John to Colossians throughout the New Testament. He is the God that created the physical and the spiritual realms. He created physical and spiritual beings, mankind and the angels. And when we say angels, that just means messengers. I don't think we even have a clue as to the diversity of angelic creation. We know there are cherubs. We know that there are seraphs, or cherubim, or seraphim, if you like. Uh, We know that there are messenger angels. We know that there are all different types, guardian angels. We know there there are a lot of different types of angelic creation. I think one of the things we're going to be most shocked with when we enter heaven is the diversity of angelic or celestial beings. I think we make it very simple. Wings, you know, you, you look at pictures, you know, there's an angel with wings. They're almost always male. You know, I think you're going to be very surprised. Because of, look at the diversity of creation here. I mean, there's not even just like one type of mosquito. In fact, I wish there were no types of mosquitoes. But God in his infinite wisdom created them. Don't ask me to explain it. But there's diversity in everything. Different types of ants, different types of, of cats, different types of dogs, monkeys. Like you look, and, and, and the plant life, you just look at the world and creation 
and you'll come to this conclusion. We serve a very diverse God, a God of diversity. Look at the way he made all of us. You know, I've heard these statistics how the basic fundamentals of our face are pretty much, you know, there's not that many options. There are only so many noses, eyes, and chins, and ears. And yet, look at the diversity of God in that none of us here look exactly alike. Maybe the sisters sitting together look a little alike, but they're not exactly alike either. So you see what happens is we see diversity in creation. What in the world do you think that heaven's going to be like in regards to the angelic realm? We don't have a clue, but it's kind of exciting to think about it. Okay, so he's the creator of all things. He's the God that created the physical and spiritual realms. He created everything, and he did so with the express purpose that all life terrestrial and celestial, would worship and serve him. All right? But he's not just the creator, God Almighty. He's also the sustainer of all things. We talked about this recently as well. By him, all things hold together. By him, all things consist. We talked about that when we were studying 2 Peter. He's the sustainer of all things. He eternally existed before his creation, which wouldn't even exist without him. He's the one allowing his creation to continue, which would cease to exist without him. Isn't it amazing, the world, puny human beings, you know, like, like flies, try to explain the creator of the universe. And they take issue with his word. And they try to rule out his existence. And they say silly things like, Well, if there was a God, who created God? Now, kids come up with that, and that's a legit question when you're four years old, who created God. But when you're 40 years old, that's just the rejection of the truth. Because what you're trying to do is say God doesn't exist, and there's way too much proof that he does. Amen? So, sustainer of all things, creator of all things, God Almighty. And that's just in the first half of the first verse. Okay, second half of the first verse. Now he says something by antithesis. He says he's God, almighty creator and sustainer of the universe. That is by saying it this way, that which was from the beginning. Then by antithesis, he begins to talk about Jesus, the human being. Because he goes on to say, which we have heard. So you see the strength of that presentation? When you start here, that which was from the beginning, it's like, it's like huge. It's like a, a major thought. And then he just kind of brings it down to a microcosm and says, which we heard. Creator of the universe, which we heard. That's antithesis. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. By saying it that way, he brings your mind from the vast infinite universe down to having a conversation face to face with a man named Jesus. It's a powerful presentation of the truth designed to touch your heart. See, now he gets into not his eternal nature as the son of God. His human nature is the son of man. You can forget this and the Gnostics did. They got caught up in that vastness of eternity, but they forgot that Jesus is a man and you need to have a relationship with him. They weren't interested in that kind of knowledge. John tells us that Jesus spoke with him, and he spoke with others. 
They heard and they considered and understood the things that he said to them. Think about it in relationship. Now I don't want you to think about the universe and the vastness and the creation and the angels. I just want you to think about having a conversation with a human being who happens to be creator God. Is that okay? Can we do that? Because that's how your relationship with Jesus should be. That's how it was for John. They heard him. They considered and understood the things he said to him. They learned from him by listening to the things he taught them. They called him teacher. And not only did they hear him, they saw him. He was seen by John and others. They saw him with their own eyes. They perceived his thoughts. They, they could see the wheels turning as he spoke to them. They became acquainted with him by personal experience. And that's what John wants for you and for me. And even though we can't see him, through God's word, we can see and hear him. We can. Spiritually, we can. Now, he doesn't just say, which we have heard and which our eyes have seen, or which we've seen with our eyes. He goes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Let's stop a moment and realize what he's saying. What's the difference between seeing and looking at? Well, when he says looked at, the Greek implies studying Not just seeing something, but studying him. See, they studied Jesus. John and others studied him. They watched him with admiration. They contemplated his every move. They spent time with him, and they learned about him. How? By watching his life. They didn't watch a Netflix documentary. They actually got to know Jesus by personal experience. Now, it goes on to say that Jesus was touched by John. They touched him. What does that mean? That means he was in their presence. That means they were in his presence. That means they they had a relationship with Jesus that was a physical, intimate friendship. They interacted with him as God, but physically as a human being. They touched him as God. And related to him through human relationship. This counters all of those that taught that Jesus, as God, never even had a physical body. You see what John is doing? Presenting the truth in the face of lies. The group of people that did that were called the docetists. They really legitimately did not believe Jesus ever had a human body. And that is a heresy. They actually would tell stories. When Jesus walked on the beach, he didn't leave footprints because he didn't have a human body, because human bodies are evil. We have human bodies, and that's why we're evil. But God doesn't hold that against us because we're both spirit and evil. God loves the spirit. He hates the evil human flesh. And so if I sin and I do the wrong thing, don't worry about it because that's not the real me. That's the way these people thought. It was, it was heresy. So he has an eternal nature. He has a human nature. But wait a minute. He also, in verse 2, is called the eternal life. He is eternal life. The life appeared. That's talking about Jesus' coming. The life appeared. We have seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life. That could be a little confusing. He hasn't gotten to the point where he says Jesus, the Son of God. But you know what he's talking about, right? You know, right? It's Jesus. He's the eternal life. He's the incarnate Son of God. 
See, he loved the world so much that he entered his creation as a created man. He is fully God, he is fully man, and he's no less God because he became a man. They, the apostles, John included, witnessed the incarnate Son of God and testified to the truth of his incarnation so those heretics who would say he didn't have a body didn't know what they were talking about. But John did because he had a relationship with Jesus, the man who happened to be the creator of the universe. But he also interacted with the resurrected Son of Man. Not just the incarnate Son of God, but the resurrected Son of Man. When you see it written this way in the latter part of verse 2, he says, When we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us, There's the appearing that talks about his incarnation. He appeared as a child. He was born into the world, right? That's the first part. The life appeared, talking about his incarnation. But when he gets to the end of verse 2, which was with the Father and has appeared to us, it seems to be talking about not just that he was the incarnate Son of God, but the resurrected Son of Man as well, because he also appeared to them after his resurrection. Are you with me? There's sort of a few things tied up in those words, appeared to us. See, he's testifying not only was he the Son of God incarnate, but the resurrected Son of Man, a man risen from the dead, the God-man. He was the first of all mankind to have received his resurrected physical body. We know he appeared to his disciples, thus proving the truth of all that he taught them. Now, they witnessed the resurrected Son of Man. They testified to the truth of his resurrection. And that's what John is writing about in this book. Now, if he didn't have a body, as the Gnostics said, could he have died? No. Could he have been raised from the dead? No. So you see why Gnosticism was a horrific heresy? Well, John addressed that later. He'll address more of that as we go through the book. Finally, as we've said already, he is the word of life. The word of life. And in verses 3 through 4, that's pretty clear when he says, We proclaim to you that what we have seen and heard, uh, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're talking about the theme of the book, fellowship with Christ. Fellowship with Christ. But it is possible because Jesus is the word of life. Now think about it. He is life and he is the word but he's also the word of life. He's the one that presents the life and the word of God because he is the word of God. That's a very rich term to use to describe Jesus, the word of life. It's a powerful, powerful term, description, name, if you will. But that's because he's the mediator between a holy God and sinful mankind. See, the apostles testified to the truth that they had heard from him, the things that they considered and understood as he spoke to them. The things that they learned from him by listening as he taught them, because they were, after all, his students for three and a half years. They testified to the truth that they had seen in him, the things that they saw and perceived as he shared his thoughts, the things that they learned through personal experience with him. This is what they were sharing as they went from city to city, from town to town to village. That's why they were apostles sent to share these truths. John was an apostle. And they testified to the possibility of fellowship with God and with his people through Jesus Christ. 
See, understand something, brothers and sisters, as we close. Faith in Christ makes relationships with other Christians possible. You wouldn't have relationships with other Christians without faith in Christ. Again, theme of the book, fellowship in Christ. Faith in Christ makes a relationship with God the Father possible. Without faith in Christ, you can't know God or have a relationship with the Father. And of course, faith in Christ makes a relationship with God the Son possible. So that's what we gain in fellowship with him. And finally, verse 4, one of the reasons he wrote the book, we write this to make our, that's yours, mine, our joy complete. What does that mean? Listen. This points to the fact that he is the Savior of all mankind. Because he's the only way that a man or woman can have a relationship with God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. He's the Savior of all creation that was marred and corrupted by the sin of mankind. We know, Christians, don't we, that he died on the cross to save mankind from their sins, to reconcile them to God. See, faith in Christ brings joy to those that are being saved. And faith in Christ brings joy to those that are already saved. So are you filled with joy? Because this letter is written to make your joy complete. The word means full. Full joy. You know, when my tank in my, my car is, my gas tank is empty, uh, I get frustrated because i got to go to that gas station and fill it up. But here's the truth. If you're feeling empty, you don't have to go anywhere. Your heart can be filled with the joy of having a relationship with Jesus even if you don't have a relationship with Jesus right now. Or if you do have a relationship with Jesus, but you just don't feel all that full. You just don't feel all that full of joy. So John's purpose in writing this epistle is to make their joy, our joy, complete through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. You've encouraged us, Lord. We thank you for the information, but we thank you for the encouragement toward a relationship with you. And now, Lord, we simply ask that you would help us to be the people who make a priority out of having a relationship with you and sharing you with those that don't. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.